0: Welcome to the podcast that will bring the pages of Elephants in Tea magazine to life. Never heard of us? We're the only magazine written for and by the adolescent and young adult cancer community. We like to call everyone in our community our herd. So, welcome to the herd. Although this club is not one that you're glad you joined, knowing you're not alone in what you're going through and hearing from people who get it can really help. With this podcast you can bring your herd with you on the go. Welcome to AYA Cancer Unfiltered, spilling the tea with our herd. I am here with author Amy Redding. Hi, Amy. Hi. I am so happy that you're here. You are going to be sharing with us a little bit more about kind of the inspiration or the feelings and emotions behind your incredibly powerful letter to cancer that is in our magazine. Um, But before we do that, I would love if you could just share a little bit about your own cancer experience so that anyone listening can have some background information about you to have some context about the topics we're going to be talking about together today.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I'm 29 years old now. I was diagnosed for the first time when i was 25 with um somewhere between stage 3 and 4 hodgkin's lymphoma uh and it was considered stage 4 because the masses were really bulky but it was more like stage 3 because it was all in my upper body so um yeah obviously whirlwind time of my life not what you expect to experience at 25 At the time, I was told it was highly treatable, highly curable, Um, and I went through six months of ABVD chemo, Um, kind of breezed through it, honestly, (laughs) Um, and I felt a lot better because I had immediate remission, basically, Um, got out of treatment in December of 2019, and then kind of as we all know 2020 was quite a year and four months into the new year um, and about a month into lockdown I found a lump again in my neck so I was re-diagnosed with the same Hodgkin's lymphoma just a reoccurrence um, only four months after I finished treatment. Uh, So that was followed with um, a higher dose chemo and a stem cell transplant. As well, I went through fertility treatments at the time uh, because of the dosage of chemo I was going to be going through. And the stem cell transplant was a crazy, crazy season, as anyone who's been through one knows. So really put me on my back for about uh, most of that year, really. Um, And I celebrated a year cancer-free following that. So I had my transplant on. September 10th, 2020. And then, um, yeah, I got a little tattoo to commemorate. I love that. I I love that. Thanks. But yeah, I had a year cancer-free and that was as well a crazy year because you're just adjusting to, I hate the new normal term, but in so many ways life had changed. And um, I opted for a PET scan that fall just like out of precaution and around my 28th birthday it came back with something showing in my lungs and they didn't want to assume it was cancer but I think many patients would relate your heart just like sinks and I kind of felt like I knew what it was so I went through three lung biopsies that winter and the start of 2022 I was diagnosed again with a third reoccurrence of Hodgkin's and yeah, since then I went through six months of brentuximab, which was a type of chemo, a T cell um, targeted one, and that didn't work. So in August of 2022, they started me on immunotherapy, and I've been on that ever since, and I'll be on it for
0: another year and a half. So, okay, wow, what a what an experience you've had from the get go. Um, first of all, I really appreciate you explaining staging for Hodgkin's lymphoma, because I know staging can be so different with every type of cancer. So I think that that's really helpful for people to understand um, that even though it's in other parts of your body, as long as it's kind of like more centrally located in the top half of your body, it's still considered um, stage three versus more widespread is stage four. Is that kind of how?
1: Yeah, that was basically how it was worded to me. Um, And it just affects like the types of treatments they can give you because of the location of my masses as well. We couldn't do radiation. We couldn't do certain things or surgery um, because my mass was like 10 by 15 over my heart and lungs. And then another one was right by my carotid in my neck. So there's so many things I think that factor into, yeah, staging and treatments and how they gauge that. Right. Totally. Absolutely.
0: And as far as the immunotherapy goes, because you said your first round of chemo, you kind of breeze through it. Um, how are you feeling on the immunotherapy?
1: I feel really good on it, actually. Yeah. Oh, good. The drug I was on before this was awful <laughs> to be, not to scare anyone who's on it. It was, for me, it was not good. Um, and it ends up not working anyways, but it was like, I had anaphylaxic reactions. I ended oh. up having to go on blood thinners, had a blood clot in my lung at one point, um, it was just really hard six months and it was my third diagnosis. So like everything felt heavy in 2022, but, um, yeah, immunotherapy has been a real gift. Like it's for me, at least it's been very, uh, unnoticeable compared to the effects of chemo, just a bit of fatigue, but
0: yeah. And it's so interesting how, like you said, differently, everybody's body takes Each medication, like maybe that one was so hard for you, but for someone else, it's a breeze. So it's so different. It's so hard to compare. Um, but one thing I know for sure was probably immensely difficult was having your transplant during like the height of the pandemic. Um, because transplants are hard regardless, but what was that like kind of going through that when, you know, the world was a very, very scary place to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think
1: part of it is like, I didn't know any different, right? I never had a transplant in a regular time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> the funny part about it is like, they they give me the same advice that the world was getting if I had had a transplant in regular time, like, it's don't true. go in crowds, wear a mask, wash your hands extra well, like, and it was funny because I was, I think the part that was different was I was watching the world's reaction to these rules that I would have had to live by anyway. Right. And it was a really big journey of like shutting off social media because a lot of like, I would just be sitting there judging people for like, I'm sorry, your son's birthday got canceled, but really like you're fine. And right, right because of, um, and you know, I've like, since then I've come out of it and, you know, I've rekindled relationships with people and realized like, everybody did go through so much during COVID. It wasn't just, and not because of COVID, but like life happens. Right. But yeah, the difference being like, you're not, I wasn't going to fight the rules and the requirements and the restrictions. And it showed a lot, I think about the level of kindness in people and the willingness of friends to show up on my doorstep with masks on and drop off meals or like, drop care packages but not feel the need to come in and like hug me and talk to me the way they had my first diagnosis and that meant the world because you know it was choosing to care about me in a different way um and in a weird way it was I guess like kind of a gift because one of the things I fought the most in my first diagnosis was feeling like all my peers were like getting ahead and doing so much in life. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling kind of guilty for thinking this, but everyone's life was on hold the same way mine was when I got Mm -hmm. diagnosed the second time. And like, nobody was doing anything that I was missing. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, like parts of it were easy, but obviously like the medical side were really hard because they were, my team was so worried about me. Um, I wasn't allowed to go home when they would have ne- normally released me. So I was an inpatient for three weeks at a time. And then I had a three week break to like recover and then went back in for three more weeks and I could have two, uh support people and they had to be the same too. Um, and just, yeah, just like not having that physical support system was crazy and really weird time for sure.
0: Wow. That's super hard. I feel like cancer in general, it's like the ultimate FOMO because the rest of the world continues and keeps turning and everyone keeps living their life. And here we are just going through the most awful thing. Um, but yeah, then you add a, a global pandemic on top of that. And I think I think your way of saying, though, that it was in a way comforting that everybody had the same kind of restrictions that you were going through. Um, I think that's a really interesting perspective and I'm sure that people who were diagnosed at a similar timeline probably agree with that feeling and and kind of felt the same way when they were going through it. So thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I'm wondering in your letter, you do kind of talk about your different emotions towards cancer. Um, I'm wondering if you could share if you could choose a word to describe how you feel about cancer right now in this moment, what would that word be?
1: I think it's like a fine line between like the word peace and the word coexisting. Mm. (laughs) I think peace gives the illusion of like, I've made peace with it. And it's like this very easy thing. Um, But I think coexisting, it's like something in the middle of those two, because I've made peace with the reality that like, it's part of my life. And I think that's connected with the fact that when I was put on immunotherapy, it was like, regardless of how you respond, you're on this for two years. So I had to get my head wrapped around the fact that like, it's not going to just be gone. And um, I can either fight that internally for two years of my life, or I can find a way to like, live the way I want to live to the best of my ability and really like experience peace and a lot of that is really choosing like choosing to not go down mental spirals choosing to like be grateful for the things in my life that I do have and that I'm very blessed as far as cancer patients go to have not lost like physical mobility or things like that like I'm externally, I'm healthy passing for a lot of people. So Mm -hmm. that even like going through life with the mentality of, I guess, switching from a victim mindset and just being like, this is what I have. And in some ways it was forced on me, right? Like it was kind of like, this is the next two years and Mm -hmm. your, your choice is like, how am I going to show up in those next two years? Cause it's not like wasted time. It's still my life. And Mm -hmm. I think being a young cancer patient, this long for me, this is going to be my fifth year I've been in and out of treatment, coming up on my 30th birthday this fall. So it's like, there's definitely been periods of time where it's like 2022, I tell a lot of people was a really hard year for me. It was just like bad news after bad news. And no, I wasn't like necessarily waking up every day with like, a positive mindset or at peace. Like if you'd asked that question last year and I think when the new year hit this year, I just had to make a shift in my head because I was sick of being down and I was sick of um, not being able to show up, you know, for myself and for my friends and
0: yeah. It's a beautiful perspective to have that you just shared. Um, But you, you said something that kind of stood out to me that from the outside, you look like a healthy, normal 29 year old, which comes with its own challenges really. Um, because it's still freaking hard what you're going through and you're going to still have hard days and weeks and months. And, um, you know, it's hard when the outside world, or maybe sometimes even loved ones, because you look perfectly healthy um maybe just assume that you are fine and i think that's another kind of recurring theme that we hear a lot about and a lot of people write about and submit because it's it's a real thing that's difficult to manage like yes yeah. i look fine yes i'm not currently in treatment does that mean i'm quote unquote back to normal does it mean i'm quote unquote fine no um but it's hard to to explain that to people that haven't been through it. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for, for sharing that perspective. And, um, I think that, yeah, it's a, it's a common one, honestly.
1: Yeah. I've had like stages where like for my first two diagnoses, my hair fell out right completely. The first one, it didn't fall out for four months. So when I buzzed it, I had like still a buzz and I, still looked healthy enough where people thought it was like a fashion choice mm-hmm. so i would get compliments for strangers and i kind of loved it because i was like how ah, they don't know and then the next the stem cell transplant it fell out to like the root so i was like a full whatever cue ball had like gone and i lost a lot of weight because it, it just stem cell transplants are so hard um so i looked and i had a port so i was like very obviously sick and mm-hmm. I noticed in that time, you know, like a lot of the people that would approach me were actually other cancer patients and mm. they would come up and we would have these cool moments that summer. Um, cause in the summer you can't hide any of that. And right. that was really special in its own way. And then the last two years, the drug I was on before this didn't even affect my hair at all. So I have never looked sick. I actually kept it quite private, like at work for a year, um, And I didn't share about it online at all for a year. And then the start of this year, I was like, okay. (laughs) Like you said, there's things that come with there's good and bad that come with both. And Mm -hmm. it felt like I was just getting a little sick of keeping it
0: (laughs) inside. Totally. Totally. I think that's natural to feel that way. And it's funny, you have that story of when someone commented on your on your short haircut or they thought that it was intentional. That happened to me. And it happened to me a handful of times. And most of the times it made me feel good because I was like, okay, cool. Like, I guess I don't scream cancer patient from the outside, (laughs) but there was one time specifically that I'm reflecting on right now. And I was uh, clearly, I was not in a good mood. I was feeling particularly spicy (laughs) this day, but someone commented in it, but not in like the super kind way. It was almost like a, like that's choice like or something like that and I remember being like actually no this is yeah. not a choice but thank you
1: yeah <laughs> totally I had a similar I've had like more positive than negative but for sure you hit a point where I have no shame in putting someone in their place one time too
0: yeah, yeah it happens right um if you could think back to 25 year old Amy and share a piece of advice or something, what would you say to your newly diagnosed self?
1: Um, that's a good question. I think I would probably say to like, give yourself a break, (laughs) Mm. uh, like in every sense of the word, um, and easier said than done, but, um, I would just be like, relax. Like you can't, beat cancer any better by trying to show the world how well you're doing and handling it and by trying to keep up with your peers. So I think like give yourself a break and like to your best of your ability, really just try to cut comparison out because your journey is not going to look like from that moment on, whether you get cancer, uh, have a reoccurrence or you're in remission and you like never have to deal with it again it changes your life from then on. And I, have I think when I went through my first diagnosis, I had this mentality of treating it like it was like training for some sort of triathlon. It's like once the moment the race is done, you're through, I put it out of my mind so much and I didn't give myself any space to process it. And then I was hit with my second diagnosis. So it was like, man, I wish I had treated it more unlike recognized not in a depressing way but recognize how big of a shift it, it makes in your life and i have friends or like family members who've been diagnosed with different things and their treatment looked like 3 months of something and they're done and even they'll always talk to me and be like well my story is not like your story or like i've had it way easier and i'm like well give yourself a break like <laughs> you you've been through cancer and that touches your life and it changes so much about the way you view the world and yourself. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I agree with all of that. I think kind of your advice is really, um, tangible because it's, it's, you have no control. Nobody has control when it comes to cancer, when it comes to a lot of things in life, but especially cancer. Um, and I think, I think that would be something that I would try to tell myself too, is try to take it one day at a time. And, and you're right. I mean, it forever changes you regardless of what your diagnosis was, regardless of what your treatment looked like, regardless if you're a year out or 20 years out. Um, yeah, I agree with everything that you said. I read when I first read your letter. And then when I listened to you read it just now, um, there were so many lines that kind of stood out to me as being especially powerful or especially relatable um, as a survivor myself. So I'm wondering if we can kind of dive in and and talk about those um, on a deeper level. There was a line that said, when I was young, the distance felt vast and endless. There was no reason I would ever need to know you more. And I I thought that this line did a really beautiful job of kind of speaking to the innocence of, I think, a lot of AYA's in this community, because why would cancer be on our minds at, at such a young age um, until we're diagnosed? So I'm wondering if you could kind of just expand on that feeling a little bit for us.
1: Yeah. Um, I think when I wrote that part, I was thinking about how When I was a kid, I think I, I can't remember exactly my age, but my one grandma passed from uh, bowel cancer. And, you know, it's like, you remember the vague parts of that, that a kid would remember, um, mostly how it like affected my mom and it was her mom and she was pretty young, right. To lose a mom. So I, but at the time it's just like, oh yeah, grandmas get cancer, like older people get sick. And um that combined with this like stigma around the word chemo and seeing my grandma like as generally it affects older people so much harder um be really really sick and go downhill and um I think like there's so much fear a attached to chemo like the word itself that I would wish more people understood like even understanding that chemo is not one drug it's a so many different things that can be put in your body and they will vary it depending on your diagnosis, on your type, on all these things and the amount you're gonna get it and how long you're gonna be on it for. Um, And just, I think, yeah, this like, that almost the naivety of like, I don't need to know any more about it because why will it affect me? And I think until you've been so closely affected which, um, yeah, I think of like young people specifically because you can't not know about it. Like I've noticed, you notice a difference, I think discussing it with people who have walked through it because there's just this knowledge you inherit and then understanding it also like a different level of um, empathy, I think. And like generally knowing what questions to ask or how to care for people because you don't just have this like, vague idea of like oh you're in chemo oh like I don't know I've seen a lot of quotes of people being like the first thing they hear when they're shared their diagnosis is someone be like oh my gosh my grandma died from that or like I know and it's like comparing your journey to someone who's passed and it's like well why would you ever say that but it's it's just like that human nature to pull up something that relates and <laughs> it's unfortunately like the worst way to respond to someone but I think that was probably me until I went through it. Cause it's like, yeah, you, you hear often about someone older getting it and you're like, I'm so sorry. Like I'm all the typical things. Um, Usually it doesn't go
0: beyond that though. It's just like, I'm sorry. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I think that that's a really valid point. I feel like the same was for me. If you don't have the family history or at least a very strong family history um, or you don't have like genetic mutations that are very known in your family that are a thing that you're already getting screened for or anything like that, it's really not usually in the minds of, of people our age. And, um, and I felt really, Um, I don't know if privileged is the right word, but like lucky that that was my case. But then when I was diagnosed and then once I kind of immersed myself in this community, you realize that it's actually far more common than I ever thought. And it's sort of like, this is kind of a horrible comparison. But you know, like when you're looking at a car and then you like, it's like a specific type of car that you were were thinking about or talking to someone about, and then you start seeing it everywhere on the highway. Yeah. Yeah, Kind of like that. Like until it's in your mind, you don't, or in your, like until you experience it, you don't really notice it or hear about it. Um, That's kind of how I felt about it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it sounds like you kind of had a, almost a similar experience, but. um, Totally. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. It's definitely difficult. Um, You had another line where you talked and you did touch upon this already a little bit, but you talked about how you didn't really process everything that you went through the first go around, the first time you were diagnosed. Um, And it seems like reflecting on that, you kind of wish that you had put more like thought into it or reflected on it more. So could you just like talk a little bit about that for us
1: yeah I think um I think I see it like there's two parts to it on one hand I've heard a lot of people share this and I relate to it a lot which is it's hard to process it when you're in the midst of it so like for me it's and there's a comfort for some weird reason about being in treatments like you know you have a team checking in on you you have like in a physical sense, you have all the support you need. Um, hopefully, unless you have a really bad team, like healthcare team, but, um, and it's like, you're actively watching and monitoring the disease. And, you know, it feels like you have all these people like on your inner your corner. And every time you check in, they ask you how you're doing. And in the past two, when I was on ABVD, it was every three weeks. So it's like, your life just becomes this, like, everything's focused on getting you healthy. And then you're out of it and suddenly you just have your family and friends and depending on who's in your corner a lot of them might not know how to ask you how you're doing and your healthcare team is primarily there to save your life not to be your social worker so like once you're out into the like remission stage I think that's when a lot of the trauma comes up and that's when you're like crap I need to be processing this but it's also when you feel like you don't have that anymore so on one hand I don't like blame myself for not processing because I think survival mode is very real and it's almost like your brain protecting you from the depth of what you're going through like I people would talk to me and treat me like you're so calm you're so like this and I'm like well you know what else am I supposed to be like I'm not no I wasn't having mental breakdowns every time I was just going every other Friday to the cancer center sitting there and letting them do their thing and it's managing afterwards and realizing you have side effects that last. And like you mentioned, chemo brain, brain fog. And at the same time, you're kind of thrust back into like the pace of your peers. And if you can't keep up for me, that's what has triggered these thoughts and feelings and like moments of like pity party and just like, what is, and the gravity of like, what did I just go through and what happened to me doesn't happen to the majority of people my age. (laughs) Um, So like, I think it's like a, it's a balancing act because I also really believe that like, you can't necessarily force yourself to deal with things if you're not ready. So like, I wasn't mentally in a space where it was even on my mind. And then my second diagnosis kind of like pushed me into this place where I was like, processing it all the time and I had to deal with it again and um I think it comes and goes in waves. so I would say like when you notice or when I notice like I was using coping mechanisms or like just ways to disengage from having to think about it then that's a sign that's like okay my it's coming up in my life and I'm not dealing with it and that's a choice I'm making that's not bettering me But in the times when it's like, you're just surviving, I think that that's putting so much pressure on yourself to like, I also have to make sense of all this. And I have to like, forgive myself or whatever. It's like, no, you just need to be present and (laughs) get through it.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I, I totally relate to what you just said again, because for me, especially, I had very similar feelings when I was in treatment and- You know, aside from the massive mental breakdown at diagnosis and then the week after, but then once, you know, the ball got rolling on treatment and it it all happened so quickly that you don't, or at least I didn't, and it sounds like you were similar I didn't have time to really like fester, really spend a lot of time processing. It was more like, okay, now what do I do to get this out of me? Like I want it gone. So it was almost like a, like a job, like. Check treatment one, check treatment two. Like I just had my head down and was so focused. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people kind of react differently. Maybe there are a handful Mm -hmm. of people who want support and want to go to support groups and want to talk about it when they're in the thick of it. But I was not one of those people. I, I, I was not ready to sit and listen to other people's difficulties and sadnesses and and hard times, which sounds horrible, but like oh, I couldn't, yeah. I, I wasn't even processing or thinking about my own. I was just so focused on getting through treatment. So totally like you, yeah, like you said, it wasn't until after that it kind of all hit me. Um, and that is something that I think happens quite often, and it's one of the reasons why. At Elephants and Tea, we do what we do and um, to be that outlet for the rest of your, you know, what you're given here on this earth to have something to know that you're not alone and and be able to share what you're going through and read other people's stories. You know, I feel like it's that point when you can actually accept what you've been through and. And that point is different for everybody. And there's no right or wrong timing of it. Um,
1: yeah. No, I really, for sure. I remember they kept pushing like pamphlets and stuff on me, mm-hmm. not like pushing, but yeah, it was brought up all the time. Like, here's a support group. Here's an option. This is young adults. And I was like bothered by it almost the first diagnosis. And I think for me, it was partially like, I had to wrap your head around you and like calling yourself a cancer patient,
0: when mm-hmm.
1: you went like two months before I was living a perfectly normal life with Mm -hmm. a couple side effects that later made a lot of sense but yeah you know to like go from that to what I said earlier even like the association of chemo and cancer with like older dying people to be blunt I didn't want to identify that way and yeah I don't think the idea of like a support group necessarily is very appealing for many people at the start but yeah, I like only recently got more connected with like a peer supporter and stuff and this is like four years in, so. Right,
0: right. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I, there was another line Um, that talked about, y- you said, when it was finally over, I stumbled out into the world like a toddler, shaky on my own two legs. So much had changed since I last walked freely outside of your grasp both internally and out in the real world. And we spoke a little bit about this just because of your experience during COVID. Um, this like depiction of re-entering the world, it just painted such a clear picture. I'm wondering if you can just speak a little bit more to how that felt to you.
1: Yeah, I think um I think I wrote that line partially because it was a lot of I the time passed so Quickly and slowly, I was like living with my parents when I was recovering. Um, I basically saw my family in like some of them in limited ways because of um, being s- the most immunocompromised, having like the immune system of a newborn in a pandemic. So obviously like life's going on, although people are living it different ways. And I think I felt it pretty abruptly when you start to sort of like kind of I was healthy enough to start like re-entry and going to things and seeing people and it's like it makes sense but it's like people had a third child and I would missed like the entire pregnancy or you know friends of friends had purchased a home or for me like it felt that was the most intense feeling of like holy smokes like my life has I got a puppy which was great (laughs) but like I felt like I had just been in this time warp and I'd been, and everyone would look at me, no, 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 you were surviving. And it was true. I was like, I was fighting for my life, but that doesn't really give you any like points in society. (laughs) So to come out like bald, um, no immune system, like visibly marked from cancer. And I, I say that knowing like, again, I, I haven't lost limbs. I haven't lost like mobility, but even just my scars and whatnot. And, you know, people will applaud you for it, but it's not something that translates over when you're trying to get a job then and you're trying to deal with um, brain fog and fatigue and lasting. And at the same time, you're trying to like rebuild some level of like muscle mass and get your cardio to a point where you can walk up the stairs and not be winded. And I think in a lot of ways that was when I felt most like I'm like I'm like an old person in a young person's body and yeah like I, I don't even know what the word would be if it's like shame or just comparison but that hit me really hard coming back back into the world out of it felt like emerging from my bedroom like my childhood bedroom and everyone's been living life even in the pandemic mm-hmm. and up till then like my mom was like okay there's one store you can go into because I was selling art prints at the time and it was an art print shop because two ladies worked there and they were super respectful. They knew my whole story. So like literally me and my dog would just go to that store like once a week. That was my only like. So just to go from that and think about what life looked like before and then to come back into the world, which even though it had been slowed down, like people were still doing a lot. And I think that was almost like shocking to me. Like I was like, oh, right. Like you've all still been working like you've all still been. Yeah, I don't know.
0: (laughs) I think your line about feeling like, feeling like an old person trapped in a young person's body will ring true to a lot of people listening. And I still feel that way. So, um, yeah, I mean, we just had, we were dealing with so much and it's hard. I think you said something about there's not much to show for it. I mean, we're here, but, you know, not like you put these things on a resume like yeah. it, there's nothing yeah so I, I don't know I thought that was very well said and I I kind of love Amy that you got a COVID puppy you were one of those yeah. that got <laughs> it's pretty awesome
1: <laughs> my my sister was like so on board so we started looking I actually got it right before I, was, I got it before I was officially diagnosed but I'd already gone through an ultrasound that didn't look good and I was like laughing so I'm like what if I get this puppy and it turns out it's not cancer? <laughs> I was like, whatever, I'm getting it either way. And then, yeah, that was my poor parents because I got her. And then I didn't know at the time that the stem cell transplant would mean I'd be an inpatient. So she became mm. their puppy for like six oh. weeks.
0: Oh, she
1: was a good decision.
0: Good. Um, There was a line in your letter about decisions and how these major, major life decisions, ones that you don't even normally have to make at at a young age, we're being talked about as if deciding in a, on an ice cream flavor. And I just loved that depiction. Um, and I think that this is one of the major reasons why cancer is so much more difficult for young adults because we're faced with our own mortality and we're faced with these big life changes and decisions that we're still trying to figure out what we're doing and and we don't have the answers yet. Um so I'm wondering if you don't mind could you speak to kind of what it was like to make some of these enormous decisions at an age that maybe you hadn't even thought about it yet like you mentioned fertility um that's, yeah. that's a difficult thing that a lot of people are going through so any any kind of anything you can share about what that was like would be helpful Yeah
1: um totally I think again it kind of touches on even like the you don't process everything in the moment usually so and i think there is a reality of like no matter how incredible your oncology team is they deal with this every single day all the time so the way they talk about things and often i think oncologists are so they're so freaking smart at least mine is she can relate or talk in a way that's like everything's so cut and dry um and I'm grateful. My sister's a nurse and like, I have friends who are nurses and they'd be like, well, you can advocate for yourself. And like, they're not going to like pause and necessarily check in with you emotionally. Um, But yeah, the first time I had to touch on even like fertility was probably the biggest one for me, aside from like, sometimes you get to say in like your treatment plan, which I didn't per se, like, aside from maybe being like, no, I'm going to go all natural, but that wasn't ever not like, you know what I mean? Like some people are like, no, I'm not going to do this. I felt like it was like, those decisions were all made. Um, I was phrased like my first chemo, was like, there's a, an, it's unlikely this will affect your fertility, but for some people it does. We'd really like to start right away because you're pretty high um, stage or late stage. And basically kind of like the way I remember it was it was like if you want, you can delay a month, but we don't recommend that. We'll give you a couple minutes to talk about it. And i was sitting in a room with my parents and they left, the medical team left. And I swear they came back in five minutes. And that was when I just started bawling. Oh and gosh. cause I was like, what? Like, I don't, is this even an option or is this something? And again, all of our memories, like, I can't be a hundred percent sure if I remember every moment, but it was phrases like, fertility treatments were not encouraged. It was like, oh, this is like experimental. I do remember that word, which is not true. Um, (laughs) It's not been called experimental for years, but like there was definitely this push of like the obvious right choices, you start treatment. But Mm -hmm. if you really feel, and I think that's something... Where like looking back now, I don't know if I would have stood my ground differently, um, or just asked for more time or asked to consult with the fertility clinic first, all of these things that I would encourage people to do. And to just really take your treatment plan into your own hands with wisdom, like, as much as yes, like you mentioned it, there's always a rush. It's like, we got to get you in, we've got to get you diagnosed, we've got to get you treated. And I think that's, unfortunately like it's wise they want to start treating it sooner but it stirs up way more anxiety and fear and it takes a lot of your um freedom of choice out of it and so I just felt like I sat for a second and I was like you know what I feel like I just need to start it feel peaceful about it let's do it and again there wasn't enough time to really process it and I consider myself really lucky and really blessed now because actually my second diagnosis when it came back, it was really slow growing and we found it early. So it was worded, worded to me totally different. It was like, oh, if you want, you can take that month. Here's a consult. Do you want to do a consult with fertility? Um, But again, was rushed into all of that. But that time the decision felt like it wasn't phrased the same way. And I mm. felt like, at least then it was handled with a little more tact and more like this treatment is going to like almost a hundred percent or a hundred percent damage your reproductive organs so like what do you want to do about it versus yeah we think it's a low risk but like you know
0: and I yeah like I know brushing I think, it off like, like it wasn't a big deal but
1: yeah it's like I'm yeah. grateful because I did get to go through that and they did um I did get to freeze eggs and like I can't help but wonder like what if you know I listened to them the first time and I had been one of those small percentage where it was affected and that was I would have felt it would have been a totally different response I think and yeah like I'm in a way it's weird thing to say but I'm grateful it's like my second diagnosis almost like redeemed the first with that Mm. where I felt like I was empowered and then by this third treatment, I feel like I ask a lot better questions. I've started like recording my conversations with my team. I call them back if I'm like wondering about things. I'm way more vocal in my own experiences,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and even even still, like I feel like I could push for more and ask for more and like. There's not nearly enough education on even like sexuality, things like that. There's so much that isn't sh- because they're like running their butts off. It's not necessarily their team that should be doing that, but I have learned and it's taken me three diagnoses and over four years to like speak up a bit more and realize that like to them, this decision might not be huge, but to me, this is like my daily life. It's affecting my life now and it's affecting it 10, 15, 20 60 years in the future so like I deserve you know all of the resources that I can get and I think that's something that like first time people getting diagnosed I would like as much as you can like I would just encourage them to kind of push back and like almost like take a pause because it is such a whirlwind Mm -hmm. um because yeah it's it's that not your oncologist's fertility it's yours and it's Mm -hmm. not and they're not going to prioritize that as number one because they're going to prioritize saving your life but those are the things that it's taken me time to look back on and be like no I wasn't stupid to want to ask that question like no I wasn't delaying everything like obviously every treatment's different and everybody has a different story but I wish that I had like had a bit more like boldness to like take a pause in that first week of getting diagnosed and just ask more questions or as much as they give you like their like info packets and stuff it's like who's reading those
0: <laughs> right right no you're not you're not alone in any of these feelings i know we just did a whole series on on cancer and fertility um and it's it's a very common thing that um people have a hard time with wrapping their heads around for exactly the the reasons you you stated i think our medical oncologists Yes, they're brilliant, but like you said, their goal, their one goal is to save your life, regardless of what that means. Um, and they don't, it's not always that they take the whole person into um, consideration, the whole person that you are. And I I wholeheartedly agree with what you said about the fact that the patient should absolutely have the say, the final say on their own treatment on whether or not they they take the time to to do the fertility treatment or get more information or have a second opinion whether regardless of what it's about um right. and i think that it's it can be very hard to advocate for yourself but it's something unfortunately that we as young adults going through cancer learn um we learn it this difficult way
1: <laughs> it's like you already feel like your life's out of your control right and then i think feeling like you are not a passenger along for the ride but you're like an active participant at least you might not have ever wanted to do chemo obviously but at least you feel like you had a say in it and it wasn't just like I remember feeling like it's like you got pushed into like this really fast moving current and you're just there Mm -hmm. and I think it took me until after the stem cell transplant to feel like okay I have my life back what are decisions I'm going to make about my health now? How am I going to live? And then in that year of remission, just really like taking more ownership over my own health. And then to get it cancer a third time, I think I'm a little more blunt with my team. I'm a little more like I ask harder questions, but I wouldn't have, I wasn't like that, you know, the first. Right. So.
0: Right. Well, Amy, I, truly can't thank you enough for being so vulnerable for not only submitting this powerful letter and I'm so glad it was chosen for the magazine, but for taking the time to chat with me about it on a deeper level. And I think your insight into all of these topics and themes and emotions, I think people are going to really relate to it. Um, And I just want to thank you for, for chatting with me and, and talking about the, the difficult things um, because, that's kind of what what we do. We want to talk about the hard things because you're not alone in going through them. So thank you for your time. And I'm wondering if anyone who's listening wants to connect with you. Um, is there a way for them to do that? What would be the best way?
1: Yeah, I think um, I have a public Instagram uh, and that's kind of where I post a bit more of some of my like writing or just reflect on um what I'm going through and where I'm at. So it's just my name. It's at Amy Redding. Um, and that'd probably be the best, best place. Yeah.
0: Great. Amy, I'll make sure I put that in the show notes for people if they would like to find you and connect with you. Um, thank you for your time and, and for talking and sharing your story. It's really important. Yeah. Thank you. That's good. Are you a patient or caregiver with something to say? Make your voice heard by participating in paid surveys, interviews, and online communities. Start talking to the right people. It's free. Rare Patient Voice accepts rare and non-rare diagnoses. In celebration of their 10th anniversary, their studies now pay at a rate of $120 an hour. Sign up today at rarepatientvoice.com slash e and t that's rarepatientvoice.com slash e a n d t thanks for listening we hope you feel a little less alone in what you're going through be sure to tune in next time but until then Visit www.elephantsandtea.com for more relatable content.